Well, it's a joy to be with you guys. I only get to do this a couple times a year, so it's always, uh, it's always fun, it's always enjoyable. Um, how about I open us in prayer, and then we, can, uh, then we can jump in. Lord, I pray that you would be with us uh, today as we open your word and as we um, seek to learn something. Uh, I pray that you would give us understanding, that you would open the, the eyes of our hearts so that we would see and behold wondrous things in your word. Uh, I pray that you would let our thoughts be guided toward the things that you want us to think about and help us to understand more deeply uh, what you have done in Jesus Christ and how uh, your entire story and your entire Bible, and specifically the book of Ezekiel, points to that. Uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're doing how Ezekiel points to uh, Christ this morning. And so I thought that the best way to jump into that would be that we would just read the entire book of Ezekiel. So if we could open up in chapter 1. No, we're not going to do that. Um, definitely not going to do that. No, so, so why are we doing this series? Um, we all kind of experience difficulty maybe with certain parts of our Bible reading plans. Everyone sort of talked about that. And I always kind of thought it was interesting that people always, well, let's, let's do a poll. What's the book that people always joke about when it comes to Bible reading plans? Leviticus, right? Everyone's like, oh, it's the laws. It's, it's so strange. Uh, I kind of personally always thought that the major prophets were possibly even more confusing because it's just like judgment against Israel, judgment against Assyria, judgment against Babylon, judgment against Tyre, judgment against Sidon, judgment against Edom, judgment against Moab, and then, and then like some, some sprinkled in uh, hope and good news texts. Um, and, uh, and if we look at, at Jesus on the road to Emmaus, we talked about this at the beginning of our series, um, when it says, and I think I have the text up there, um, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, we could take that and we could say those are certain texts that are just like about Jesus, like a, a prophecy about the virgin birth or something like that. Um, but we need to understand that when it says all the prophets, Rob actually touched on this in, I think it was last sermon, um, the, the Hebrew Bible is divided up into these three sections, and the prophets, um, the, that's the Hebrew word nevi'im, and that actually includes things like First and Second Samuel, First uh, and Second Kings. Um, and so when, when Jesus says that all the prophets, or he interpreted to them in all the prophets, the things concerning him, he's actually also saying that the history of Israel, the story of Israel, points to Jesus. Right? It's not just individual text. And, and can anyone guess what all means? So when we, when we do like a deep dive into the Greek and the Hebrew, uh, we find out that all actually means all. Um, and and, uh, and you, can trust your, you can trust your Bibles there. When it says all, it really means all. And so the goal is not to find these sort of Jesus Easter eggs uh, all through the Old Testament, certain texts that are about Jesus, and then everything else is kind of confusing or, or like interesting history or maybe something where you can like learn a moral story, kind of like an, an Aesop's fable, do you know those? Uh, where it's like, I don't know, the rabbit and the hare and things like that. It's like, well, there's David and Goliath, and, and what do we learn from that? Well, we sort of imitate it. No, it's the whole structure of the Old Testament that calls for a Savior. The whole structure of the Old Testament leads to Jesus, and that's what hopefully I want to show uh, this morning. And 
To that end, we're actually going to kind of start at the beginning of the Bible and spend kind of a 15-minute crash course in biblical history. Um, And my hope today is that that's illuminating and it doesn't kind of come across as kind of this wild ride of making little connections, but it can hopefully be understandable. And so we're going to start with the big idea of Ezekiel that we're going to try to keep in mind as we go through this is that God is on a mission to restore all things through his chosen representative. God is on a mission to restore all things through his chosen representative. And so if we start the story of the Bible, we start the story of the Bible in Eden, right? There's the Garden of Eden. We all know about it, roughly at least. And the Garden of Eden is God's people in fellowship with God in a flourishing garden with a river flowing out of Eden. Now, that last part is going to be important. You may not have uh, heard about this before, but we have actually very few descriptions of what Eden was supposed to look like. And one of the very interesting things is, is that there was a river flowing out of the garden. This is a peculiar feature that we're sort of highlighted. Uh, in Genesis 2.10, uh, I don't have it here, but you guys have it, so, so maybe I'll turn around. Um, it says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers, and the name of the first was the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The name of the second is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed through the whole land of Cush, which is down in Africa. That's probably something like the Nile. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth is the Euphrates. So these are the most significant waterways of the ancient world. I have a map uh, up there, and what you can actually see is the, the... Have you guys ever heard of Mesopotamia? So Mesopotamia... Uh, meso means in between, Potamia or Potamus or Potamus, so to speak, is a river. So actually, if you've ever heard of a hippopotamus, um, that's, a hippo is the Greek word for horse, uh, and potamus is a river. And so I don't know who saw a hippopotamus and was like, that's a really fat river horse, um, but somehow the name stuck. So Mesopotamia is the land between the two rivers of the the, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And there's the Nile and there's all these other rivers. And this here, that like bow, is what's called the Fertile Crescent because that's where everything grows. That is the source of life if you are an Israelite. If you're an Israelite, the great land, the good land that you want to be around is in the Fertile Crescent, right? And so what does that mean? Well, it's an image of Eden sends out this one river that divides and gives life to the entire world. It gives the fruitfulness that is the source of life for the entire ancient world at the time. All the four major rivers that you have are taken from this one river that flows out of the garden. Uh, and we're going to return to that in, in Ezekiel where there's some significant imagery that has to do with that. And so, but what happens? We have the sin. We have sin. We have the fall of Adam and Eve. Um, And the fellowship with God, God's people living in God's garden under his holy rule, that fellowship is broken. And because of Adam and Eve's sin, they can't live in fellowship with God anymore. Uh, And and they actually know it. It's interesting. They actually know it even before God tells them. They sin and they instinctively immediately know when God comes by to hide. 
And so in a really interesting way, you could say that they have kind of removed themselves from everything that the garden represents, even before God puts them out of the garden. Uh, because that fellowship is broken because man cannot live with God uh, as a sinful creature. And nevertheless, we have a promised restoration in Genesis 3.15. I don't have a text up there, but um, hopefully you're familiar with this text. Very important text to understanding the storyline of the Bible. Um, God promises that a descendant of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. The serpent is going to bruise his heel, so inflict some sort of wound on this descendant of the woman, but that descendant of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. And implied is that in that is the undoing of all of Satan's works. The, the return to the garden, the, the future redemption. Um, and and nevertheless, they're, they're put out of the garden. And outside of the garden, there's no fruitfulness, right? Inside the garden, there's fruit trees. Nobody has to work for anything. Uh, you just walk up to a tree. I thought, as a kid, I thought this was amazing. You just walk up to these, like, tropical fruit trees that probably, like, tasted better than anything we have now, and you don't have to work for it, and you just eat fruits all day, because I loved fruits growing up, and still. Um, and outside of the garden, there's a curse, and God tells Adam, only by the sweat of your brow will you be able to bring forth fruit from the ground. It'll be hard, painful labor to try to bring forth fruit. And the restoration is going to come through this mediator, um, this, this, this person, this seed of the woman, this new leader of humanity, this uh, descendant of Adam. In uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost, has any of you ever heard of that? Um, most of us have probably heard of it more than we've actually read it, um, unless you're like an English major, something like that. But he opens up, and I think this is really well done, he opens up his, his poem on the story of the garden uh, with, with real clear understanding. And I'll just read the first four lines. Uh, he says that this is the story of, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden until one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. That's, that's the story of the Bible. We lost Eden, paradise lost, until one greater man restore us and bring us back to that uh, blissful seat. And the Adam and Eve, they are put out of the garden to the east. Um, and this is significant. So the, it, we read in Genesis 3.24, and I think I do have it on a slide, that the Lord placed the cherubim with a flaming sword to bar the way on the east of the garden. Uh, and so we know that the entrance to the garden is an eastward-facing entrance. And I know you guys are thinking, what does this have to do with Ezekiel? We're going to get there, and it's very significant. Um, so we, we basically only know two things about the garden. There's, there's a river flowing out of it. Maybe three things. We know three things about the garden. There's a river flowing out of the garden. The entrance to the garden faces east. So you enter into it from the east. And the Lord places cherubim to guard the entrance into the temple. Cherubim are like God's temple guardian. Nobody can pass while the cherubim stand there. They are there with a flaming sword, lest anyone try to just enter in sinfully. So, now we're going to fast forward about who knows how many thousand years, uh, skipping all the way to Israel. When Israel enters the land, when Israel enters Canaan, the promised land, uh, this is the first time since the garden, that something like a return to paradise 
or a return to Eden has happened. A, a land, a country, a physical place where God is going to live with his people. You understand the significance? Adam and Eve living with God in a physical place in a garden-like paradise and they're thrown out and when Israel enters the land again with the goal to live with God in a physical place. Does anyone remember how the land of Israel is described? It is a land flowing flowing with milk and honey. And when the spies enter the land to see what kind of a country this is, see what kind of a land this is, uh, do you remember what they discover? This is a kind of a kindergarten, uh, not a kindergarten, a Sunday school question. It's probably in every children's Bible. There's a picture of it. No. Yeah? What? Okay, that's true. So there's enemies in the land, there's people bigger than them, but also there's a ton of fruit in the land, right? There's this, there's this picture of they have to carry a single cluster of grapes. Do you remember this now? A single cluster of grapes on a pole between two people, right? And so this land is described as this fruitful garden paradise, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, does anyone remember what direction Israel enters the land from? I know this is sounding conspiratorial, but I promise you this is all there. So there's a map. I have a map here. Israel walks an extremely strange route. It's kind of blurry. I hope you can all see it. Israel walks this really strange route to get into the land. Uh, And they walk all the way around the land, and then they enter it from the east. They walk all the way around the land, and then they enter it from the east. And if, if you remember this, they are, in, in Joshua 3, they are told to consecrate themselves. So they're about to enter the land, and they're told to consecrate themselves. And what that means is basically to purify themselves ritually, which in the Old Testament is something that you only do when you're entering a temple, right? People, people in Israel, when they were impure, that was okay. They just couldn't enter the temple. They had to be consecrated. They had to be holy. They had to be purified to enter a temple, And normally, the Ark of the Covenant goes on ahead of the people, and everyone follows the Ark of the Covenant, but what actually happens when they enter the land is that the priests take the Ark of the Covenant with the two cherubim sitting on top of the Ark, and they stand in the river, and the entire people has to walk past them to enter the land. Hopefully you're seeing some of the symbolism here. The entire people has to consecrate themselves before entering the land from the east, walking past the cherubim to enter into the land where they are going to live with God. And the focus, the focal point of where God lives with his people is the temple and the tabernacle. Um, That is the, the, the singular place where God really lives with his people because there is still sin God can't just walk in the cool of the garden like he did with Adam. Um, there is still sin, and so there's this bounded temple. Uh, and the temple is, is the true sort of seat of God, or the tabernacle, before they uh, got around to being able to build a temple, because it wouldn't have been very uh, practical to build a temple in the desert while they're wandering, and then kind of carry it with them wherever they went. So they had the, the tent first, and then eventually the temple. And the temple, can anyone guess which way the door of the temple faces. Yeah, the door of the temple always faces east, and it's commanded to be facing east. And details in biblical stories uh, are not insignificant. 
They, they don't just mention things to mention them. They're actually very short stories by comparison. The Bible's not a, a very long book, even though it may seem that way sometimes. Um, these kind of details are important. The door to the temple always faces east, and Ezekiel is going to make a lot out of that. Um, and so you would, be, you would enter into the temple. And so as a worshiper, you would enter into the door from the east, and you would be reminded that in order to re-enter paradise, in order to re-enter the garden, you could only enter by walking past that first layer where all those sacrifices, all that death, all that blood was shed. Only through those things could you walk through into the Holy of Holies, where, by the way, what is in the Holy of Holies? What is barring the way to the Holy of Holies? Cherubim. Cherubim bar the way to the Holy of Holies. They're woven into the sacred curtain. The sacred curtain is a a thick curtain with cherubim laying all outside of it, woven into the fabric. It's described in, in, in Exodus. And the temple is covered in garden imagery, um, is, is completely covered in. Have you ever wondered why part of the high priest's uniform is to wear pomegranates on his clothes? Fruits. The high priest, he wears fruits when he enters in. That's kind of, that's kind of weird, right? You don't usually wear fruits in your, I mean, I guess like a Hawaii shirt with like some fruits. Um, and, uh, and when Solomon builds his temple, he, he on, the, on the pillars, he builds 200 replica pomegranates. Uh, and if we pull up 1 Kings uh, 6.29, um, we have the description of what the temple looked like. And he carved all the walls of the house all around with carven figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. Uh, and in another passage, it says lilies within and without. Okay, so when you enter into the temple, what does it look like? Pomegranates, palm trees, lilies, flowers, cherubim. So when you enter into the temple, you feel as if you're entering into a forest garden kind of place. Okay. And God's rule in this, in this new land, in this new country, is administered by his representatives. So we don't have the one representative yet, but we're still waiting for him. And in the meantime, we have prophets that tell the people what to do. We have kings that administer God's holy rule. And we have the priests that open the way to him. So what does all this have to do with Ezekiel? It, it, it seems like I've talked about everything in the Old Testament except for Ezekiel. And do, do any of you know this... Um, it's not something to be mentioning in a sermon, but do any of you know this meme where, where the person is like on the pin wall and like drawing wild connections? Um, I, I kind of feel like I'm doing that right now, but I hope that this really illuminates how Ezekiel fits into the story of God. Um, so what does all this have to do with Ezekiel? Well, there's one fatal problem in all this wonderful plan. The same sin that drove Adam from the garden. The same sin is still there, and the one representative, that seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, he hasn't come yet. The serpent is still spreading confusion, is still um, drawing all, making all kinds of temptations. The sin of man is still there. So just when it seemed like paradise was regained, everything's back, paradise was lost again. And maybe just as an aside, when the temple is destroyed in, uh, in Jeremiah 52, um, which we heard about a couple weeks ago. Um, 
it actually mentions the pomegranates of Solomon being cut down and carried off. So it's like the garden has been destroyed. And if you remember what happened to Adam and Eve when they, were sin- when they sinned, what happened to them? They were driven from the land. And what happens to Israel when they sin is that they are driven from the land. That is exile. That's the biblical significance and the spiritual significance and the historical, uh, in the the history of God's salvation, that's the significance of exile. They are thrown out of God's garden paradise in the same way that Adam and Eve were thrown out of God's garden paradise because they can't live um, in the land with God. You'll notice something that the prophets say all the time is that the land is polluted. The land is polluted. And Ezekiel begins in exile. If you open Ezekiel 1, you'll see that he says that he was with the exiles by the Chebar Canal. And so this is after the temple has been destroyed. God's people are driven out from the land. Uh, Another imagery that I'm remembering that the, the prophets often use is that the land vomits them out. They can't live there. The land is supposed to be this holy place. They are so sinful. They're so filthy that it's like the land throws them out. And Ezekiel begins with the shattered hope of paradise. And so we have Ezekiel's three points, Ezekiel's three messages that he opens his story with. And the first is that the fellowship with God has been broken. So Ezekiel is called and he sees a vision of the glory of the Lord, a golden throne being carried by the cherubim, the presence of God, and God calls him to go to Israel and to prophesy to them and to try to turn their hearts back to God. And here's the, here's the description. He says, Son of man, I'm sending you to the people of Israel. This is Ezekiel 2, 3. To a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord. So the fellowship with God is broken. God, God talks about rebellion. And the second point is that it's been broken because of sin. It's been broken because of sin. And I think a passage that exemplifies this beautifully, along with everything that we're talking about, is Ezekiel 8.16. And I have all the things, all the major texts up there because we're, we're, we're not reading from Ezekiel 1.1 to the end. And so we're, we're jumping around a little bit. Uh, and I'll just read this in full. Uh, Ezekiel is led by this angel and he's given a vision into why the judgment of the Lord has come. He's already in exile, but he's, he's remembering, he's given a vision of back to how Israel disobeyed. Then he brought me, this is the angel that's leading him through this, these visions, he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, the temple, and behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple and their faces toward the east. And they were prostrating themselves, which means worshiping, eastward toward the sun. So instead of being oriented toward the temple, trying to re-enter paradise, trying to live in fellowship with God, they turned their backs, just like Adam and Eve, where the fellowship was already broken in the garden, even before they were thrown out of the land. Ezekiel is saying that even before exile came, even before God's punishment came, They had already turned away from living with God. They had already turned their backs to the temple and were looking eastward. Turning their hearts, again, symbolically away. And so, 
The fellowship has been broken, and it's been broken because of sin. So the, the, only, the, only, thing, the only thing worse than suffering is suffering when you know that it's your fault, right? And that's the message of Ezekiel. You are suffering, and you are out of the land because of something you did. It isn't like, like if you apply for a scholarship, and you do your best, and you don't get it. It's, oh, well. But if you're lazy, if you, are, if, you, if you just don't do the work or something like that, and you suffer the consequences for that, that hurts a lot more. Because you know you can't blame it on your circumstances, you can't blame it on your parents, you can't blame it on how you were raised, you can't blame it on any other thing except yourself. And our culture kind of hates that, uh, you may have noticed. Uh, we always have a reason for, for what we did wrong uh, and, and why we are the way that we are. Um, but Ezekiel's message is that it's been broken because that people have turned away in their hearts. And then number three is that the glory of the Lord has left the temple. And Ezekiel 10 is, I, I, I don't think it would be too harsh to say that Ezekiel 10 is the worst chapter in the entire Bible. It is the low point of the entire story of God, right? Because the glory of the Lord leaves the temple, right? So the experiment of God living with his people in Israel, that's over. God has left the land. A temple is not... Uh, a, a thing in itself that is useful. Like, oh, it's nice, it's a nice building. A temple is only what it is insofar as the Lord is living there, right? When the glory of the Lord leaves the temple, God has left his people, has abandoned his people, it seems. So I'll, I'll read part of that, uh, verse eight, verses, just verses 18 to 20. The glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. So God and the cherubim are leaving And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. These were the same living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Chabar Canal in his first vision. And I knew that they were cherubim. So again, Ezekiel 10 is the end of God living with his people in in, in Israel. It's the end of God living in a land. So is this the end? No, because Ezekiel has 48 chapters. Ezekiel 10 is not the end of Ezekiel. God is going to act. He is going to renew the hearts of his people, which uh, I think Eric is going to speak about next week. Uh, So I won't steal that sermon. Uh, I won't really touch on that. But there are some very specific promises that I want to walk through uh, in the end of Ezekiel that they should make our ears ring based on what we've just heard when when we hear the wording. Uh, Ezekiel's two answers to the problem is, first, God himself will be the missing representative. God will himself be the missing representative promised in Genesis. And we can open Ezekiel 34 for that. I have the text also up there. Um, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. What are the shepherds, by the way? Remember what Chris uh, talked about a couple of weeks ago? The shepherds are the leaders of Israel. Those are those prophets, those priests, those kings that were supposed to, to function as these intermediaries until the one true prophet, priest, and king comes, the seed of the woman. So these shepherds, God says that they have not tended the flock well. They have abandoned uh, the, the flock. And he says, I myself 
will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, and they have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. The scattering, that's the exile. And I will seek the lost. And I will bring back the strayed. Hopefully you're already hearing some of the things that Jesus says about himself. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong in in, in context, the prideful, I will destroy and I will feed them in justice. And then in verse 23, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall be with them and be their shepherd and I the Lord will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So there's an interesting question here that a lot of people puzzle through. Uh, Is it going to be God himself who's the shepherd? Or is it going to be the Davidic king, the king like David? Is it going to be God? Or is it going to be another man? And the answer, of course, is yes. Um, We see how those things come together in Jesus Christ. How God's unmediated shepherding of his people and the Messiah, the Davidic king, come together in one person. But I'm stealing from the, 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 the end of my sermon. Um, Ezekiel tells us that God is going to step in to fix things. That's the point of that section. Ezekiel tells us that God himself is not going to leave things as they are with the exiles scattered abroad, the, the, the people in disarray, the uh, glory of the Lord has left the temple. The temple itself has now been destroyed And God says, I myself am going to be their shepherd and I'm going to lead them back and I will gather them and I will bind up the injured and I will seek the lost. And the second thing that Ezekiel tells us is that God is going to restore the broken fellowship and make all things right. God is going to restore the broken fellowship and make all things right. So remember how we talked about the temple is supposed to be this picture of Eden. And it's destroyed and the glory of the Lord left. Well, Ezekiel 40 through 48, so a huge chunk of Ezekiel, is dedicated to showing us a vision of a new temple. And that can be a very confusing set of chapters because we say we're in the New Testament. We we don't have temples. Why, Why am I interested in the construction of a temple and all these like descriptions of this temple in the end of some obscure prophet in the Old Testament. And I think hopefully we'll be able to see some of these things when I read these texts. Let's, let's start with Ezekiel 43, 1 to 5. After the temple has been rebuilt and, and the, the instructions have been set, then he led me. This is the angel that's leading Ezekiel through the visions. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing where? East. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. Which is Ezekiel 10, when he left the the temple, and then the the, the temple was destroyed. So it's the same same vision, the glory of the Lord with the cherubim and all these wild things that Ezekiel is seeing, this vision of this chariot of God, the presence of God. The vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chabar Canal in the beginning. And I fell on my face and the glory of the Lord 
entered the temple by the gate facing east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So, I, I missed it. Did he mention which way the, the, the temple was facing? It's east, right? This is God's presence returning to live with his people. This is, this is the reversal of Ezekiel 10, where God leaves his people, says, I can't live with these people. They are filthy. The land is, is, is they're too impure to live in a country with me. God is returning, and the glory of the Lord will once again fill the temple. And in, ca- if, in case we miss the point, in case we miss the Eden imagery, the paradise imagery, let's read uh, a chunk of chapter 47 as well, and then there will be no more reading, I promise, but, but this, this is valuable. Then he brought me to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar, and then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around to the outside, to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out. Verse 3, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. It's deep. So there's water running out of the temple. And then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep, and he measured again a thousand cubits. And he led me through the water, and it was knee deep, and he measured another thousand cubits further out, and led me through the water, water, and it was waist deep. And he measured another thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river, and as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows down and goes down into the Arabah, which is the desert, and then it enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. So it is a life-giving river that flows from the temple, just like the river that flowed from Eden and gave life to the, all, all the surrounding world. This, this, this river is so life-giving that it turns the salty sea into fresh water. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be many fish. And then verse 12, and on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food, and their leaves will not wither. There won't be any decay of these trees, nor will their fruit fail, and they will bear fresh fruit every month. What does that sound like? Sounds like the garden, right? They will bear fresh fruit every month. Because the water that flows for them, the water for them, flows from the sanctuary. It's coming down out of the temple. And their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So what's the message? All done reading. What's the message? Just like a river flowed out of Eden and watered the entire ancient world, there is now a river flowing out of the temple, giving life wherever it goes. This is a return to paradise. God is still committed to bringing about paradise. So how does Ezekiel point us to Jesus? Ezekiel teaches us in its entire structure, in its entire, in the way that it's woven into the fabric of the biblical story. Ezekiel teaches us that God is going to make everything new again. That God is going to make all things right again. He himself is going to take action. And when everything, in in spite of our human failures, 
in spite of our sin, in, in spite of our inadequacy, in, in spite of our impurity, in spite of the fact that we can't live near God on our own, God is still committed to bringing back paradise lost. God is still committed to bringing back paradise lost. That garden picture of, of paradise and perfect harmony with God, that's still coming, says Ezekiel 47. There's still going to be another sanctuary with a river flowing out of it. And God is going to take action to make everything right. And that's exactly what he did in Jesus Christ. And if we think of it like this, again, I said, you know, we, we read about this temple and we think, why, what does this have to do with me? We don't have a temple. Well, that's not, that's not entirely true. It, it is true. Uh, we don't have a temple. We don't need a temple. But... Do any of you remember who spoke of himself as the temple? Jesus said that he is the temple. And so when we understand that Jesus Christ is God's once and for all answer to the question of how can we get back to paradise? How can man live with God? The answer was not that Israel raise itself up so perfectly and purely that they can once again live with God, the answer was that God humbled himself and lived with us. The answer is that God himself humbled himself, took on our form, and came down to live with us. And when we understand that the temple is a symbol of a place where God and man meet in harmony, then we can understand John 2, 18 through 21. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus said, I'll destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, that's ridiculous. No, it doesn't say that, but it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. That's what John tells us. John says that Jesus spoke of the temple of his own body. The ultimate meeting place between God and man was Jesus himself. And if we, if we remember the symbolism of rivers of life-giving water flowing out of the temple into the world, giving, giving life and, and water to wherever it comes, then we can understand what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And you know what's really interesting? There's no scripture that says out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That, that, that's not, there's no one-to-one -one verse that says that in the Old Testament. When Jesus says, as the scripture says, out of his heart or center will flow rivers of living water, he's again claiming to be that temple from Ezekiel. If you have an ESV study Bible or something like that, and you look in the little footnote under that, as the scripture says, you know how you can usually find the, uh, the, the parallel passage that, that that's pointing to in the Old Testament? It'll say Ezekiel 47.1. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And just like Jesus told the woman at the well, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, real regular water, will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And Jesus himself, of course, is that long-awaited representative that we've been waiting for. 
And when we understand how God says, I myself, as I've already said earlier, I myself will be the shepherd. I myself am going to be the one that brings back the people, that, that opens the way to paradise, to Eden. Then we can understand when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is unlike the shepherds that failed in the Old Testament, the prophets, the priests, the kings, all of them failed. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I give life to my sheep, and none will perish. So what Jesus is really saying is, I am that good shepherd. I am the good shepherd from Ezekiel 34. So Ezekiel is about God's promise to make all things right again. And if you remember what happens when Jesus dies, I don't have this in my sermon notes, but it's too good to not say this. What happens in the temple when Jesus dies? The curtain, which has the cherubim woven into it and bars the way to that most holy place with all the garden imagery, rips in two. And the way back into paradise, the way back into the garden is opened up again. That's what Jesus does. That's the message of Ezekiel. And if you don't, if you don't believe me with all these like weird connections again, let me read Revelation 22, verses 1 through 3. The vision of the restoration of all things, paradise, heaven, right? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. So the river of life in Revelation, where does it flow from? It flows from Jesus, down into the world. And through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river, the trees, with 12 kinds of fruit. How often do they give fruit in Ezekiel? Every month, it said, right? Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That is straight out of Ezekiel 47. Straight out of Ezekiel 47. The vision of the restoration of all things, heaven when we will live with God forever, is the vision of this restored temple where God again can live with man. So what does this mean for us? Coming up on our time here. So what does this mean for us? This means all things are being restored. It means that in Jesus Christ, the promise of God to restore everything, to undo the works of Satan, to undo the effects of sin, all that is starting in Jesus. That's why Jesus does healings, because part of the effect of the curse is death. Jesus doesn't just forgive sins, which is part of the effect of the curse. He starts to undo the effects of the curse. He multiplies food. He heals people of their sickness. And Ezekiel 10, it means Ezekiel 10 is not the final word. When the glory of God leaves the temple, even though we're sinners, the way to paradise is open. It's open for us. So no matter what you're going through, be it uh, cancer, financial problems, any kind of sickness, any kind of separation even, uh, which, which we, we can tend to downplay but can be a very s- significant and real hurt, all those things will be undone forever. In, in, the, in the Lord of the Rings, 
Some of you already know where I'm going with this. The, the, the end of the story, when Sam wakes up after bringing the, the ring all the way to Mordor, uh, he wakes up and he looks at Gandalf and he realizes that they've won, right? And he, and he asks Gandalf, he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer of Ezekiel is yes, everything sad is going to come untrue. And of course, it also means that we look to Jesus. We can't be pure enough to live with God. That's the other message of Ezekiel. We are not in ourselves holy and pure enough to live with God in that garden. We too would be driven out of paradise like Adam, like Israel. But because of Jesus' obedience in our place, because he was obedient where we weren't, we can live with God forever. And so we believe him. We believe in him. We trust him. We trust that his sacrifice really tore that curtain, really opened the way for us into paradise, into fellowship with God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for putting your Bible together in such an amazing way. Lord, even as I was preparing this sermon, I was amazed at the connections in your word. The, the riches of your storyline that begins in Genesis and runs all the way through Revelation. And I pray that you would help us to see these things when we read the Bible. I pray that this sermon wouldn't be, uh, the, 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 the take home from this sermon wouldn't be, I can't, believe, um, I can't believe someone could see all that in the Bible, but the take home would be, I can't believe I didn't see that in the Bible. That we would all begin to have eyes that are sensitive to your great salvation that you have recorded for us in your word. And I pray that we would take these truths into our week and that they would uh, give us new life, that they would give us new hope, that they would give us new strength and new joy, knowing that you are making all things new. In Christ's name we pray, amen.